welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. My name is Mike. Our guest for this episode is David Wax, along with his wife, Suze Slezak, make up the core of the band, David Wax Museum. They've just released their latest record, Line of Light. I think this is a personal record that Dave and Suze have created here. These uh, songs are shaped by their experiences uh, the last few years of their family life, uh, events in their hometown of Charlottesville. But the messages here uh, are universal. Uh, At its core, I think this album is a message of hope, and it's really wonderful. You should check it out. David Wax Museum are also known for their wonderful live shows. I talk with David about what they're after when they perform live. They've been described as joyful and energetic experiences. You should try to take one in. David and I had a great discussion. He's very thoughtful and intentional about his craft, and he approached our conversation the same way. I really enjoy it, and I think you will too. So let's get to it. Here's our discussion with David Wax. Okay, David, uh, welcome to Tell You What, the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, I am in Tell You What Studios, and you are in Charlottesville, is that correct? Charlottesville, Virginia? That's right. That is an important city in the Tell You What Studios history is where I met the executive uh, producer and spiritual advisor to the podcast, my wife Susan. We met there. So it is a town that is close to our hearts. And I believe your wife, Suze, grew up there. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. She she grew up uh, about 25 minutes outside of town in uh, a little area called Free Union. Right. Um, so very much in the Charlottesville orbit, but she had kind of like a, her parents kind of fit into that, like back to the lander um, movement. And so they were kind of city people that were looking to kind of raise their kids on a farm and to be a little more disconnected from the kind of wider culture at large. And so they, um, they chose Charlottesville. And now you have chosen Charlottesville as a place to raise your children. Exactly. Yeah, we moved here six years ago, uh, six years ago this month, uh, just a couple months before our daughter was born. And I guess you like it there. You've been there six years. Yeah, it's been a great place. I mean, it's um, it's a small town in a lot of ways. Um, it's even, I mean, I'm from a small, smaller city, um, a college town in central Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of commonality with Charlottesville. Um, and there's a traditional music kind of vibe there from the from the Blue Ridge. Mm-hmm. It kind of seeps into the town a little bit. Yeah, and Suze grew up with a lot of that pretty present in her life and, and around a pretty, I mean, a, yeah, I'd say a thriving old-time music scene, bluegrass scene that her brothers and her were part of. I mean, we definitely were motivated by kind of, yeah, more by family and feeling like we needed support and more of a built-in community to pull this off Um, because we had been living in western Massachusetts which was which was a lovely place Um, but none of our family was nearby at all and we kind of were peering into the future and 
imagining what this was going to be like to keep this touring lifestyle with kids. Right. And so it, it just seemed so obvious that this was the, the place for us to be. All right, we'll, we'll get back to the family, your family, uh, in a bit. Let's go back in time a little bit. I want to talk about maybe your youth in terms of the music you maybe were exposed to when you were growing up and then how you found your way initially to playing and, and writing music. Well, I like I, I mentioned, I grew up in central Missouri, in Columbia, mm-hmm. and um, I wasn't... Um, my parents had kind of a laissez-faire approach about music, even though for my mom it was a very important part of her life. Uh, and I guess I mean a laissez-faire approach about music lessons. And, right. Um, because they had tried to force my brother into it, and he had rebelled. Um, and so it was kind of a more hands-off approach for me. And um, But my mom had gone to school initially on a piano scholarship, so it had been really important to her. My great-grandmother was a piano teacher. Okay. Um, so there was definitely that. You know, like we had my great-grandmother's piano in our house. And it was like, you know, one of the family treasures. And... I was just really fortunate that I grew up uh, alongside my cousins and kind of had these like constant companions at my age um, and kind of someone to, you know, kind of egg me on at different points. There was, it was like a very healthy competitive uh, relationship of kind of like pushing each other in different ways and trying to keep up with each other. And, And one of those ways was through music. So my cousin and I both started piano when we were 10 um, and then when we were 13, we got guitars, and we started writing songs together. Oh, wow. So so at 13, you were already writing your own songs. Yeah. And it was just, and it was done in a way that was just like, there was just, you know, we weren't self-conscious about it, which is kind of the beauty of starting at that age, I think, where you just, you don't know anything about the guitar. You don't know any, there's no rules. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It was just like, you know, it's just what we did when we were together. Like, all right, mm-hmm. let's write a song right now. And let's make a band and and it was just it was it was just such a natural outgrowth of us loving music and thinking the Beatles were the coolest thing on earth and um was there any performance yeah a lot a lot of performance actually um when you were 13 14 mm -hmm. yeah we I mean first it was just like playing in other kids like kind of yeah playing at parties and playing in basements at parties and then it was starting to play the venues in town um you know whether it was like first the coffee shops or you know kind of slowly building up to the bigger venues in town um getting like some you know trying to kind of find the best musicians in columbia missouri and kind of slowly bringing them into the fold until we just had it just when i look back now i'm just like man that just like such an incredible level of musicianship for a high school band i mean it was just you know, and a lot of kids that like were whose parents were musicians or their parents were like the musician families in town, right? Um, and so, kids that were way more steeped in it in a way than we were. Um, Any of those songs survive to this day? Um, <laughs> well, it depends on what you mean by survive. You, do you remember them? Could you play them? Uh, yeah, I could. I mean, there was a there were a couple that I remember. I, my cousin and I were asked at my older brother's wedding to like revive some of them. And they were, they were like in my brain. It was, it was amazing that they were there. Um, and I, I'd written a, a rock kind of like a mini rock, a 10 minute long condensed rock opera 
The Reader's about, Digest opera. <laughs> yeah, a Reader's Digest rocked opera <laughs> about being brainwashed. Um, and that was a song that like stayed with me for a while, and I, I remember playing it when I was in college. It was a little bit of a gimmick, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but that song lasted for a little bit after after the band had broken up. Man, I had I had so much to learn still about what it meant to write a song, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is just an interesting thing about kind of having like a creative partnership from a very young age with my cousin, and I always saw him as like the true musical genius and songwriter, and I think that made it really hard for me to imagine like doing music as a career, because <laughs> um, it was like, well, he's the one who is like really cut out for this. He was probably thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> well, there was, I mean, I was definitely more of like, uh, I'm definitely going to go to college. And I'm like way more on this academic path. And he was like, no, college is not for me. You know, like mm. I, I really want to, you know, go live in Latin America, you know, take like our high school. We had, he'd started a klezmer band that I was in with him in high school. And he was like, I really want to pursue this more seriously. And, um, I, you know, I still listen to the music from that period that he wrote because I still think it's it's beautiful and stands up over the test of time. But my own stuff from that period, I feel like I, I can't stand to listen to. I'm, I'm glad it doesn't exist on the Internet. Um, <laughs> he's probably he's probably listening to it. <laughs> um, but now we're both professional musicians. That's what we both do. Oh, that's and, great. You know, so it's I think we just had to find uh, our own path. In that for many years he was uh, kind of a contributor and, and has played on many of our records and toured with us and been still a, a huge creative inspiration to me and Sue's. Um, but he he just loved the kind of the more traditional music route. And so now he's he's in Santa Fe pa- playing traditional Mexican and New Mexican fiddle and accordion-based music. Okay, now I want to draw a parallel between your relationship with your cousin early on and now your relationship with your wife as creative partner, right? You've had these mm-hmm. two long yeah, I've been very fortunate. fairly intense relationships. Yeah, I think it's just a key. I mean, it's been so key for me, uh, and I've been so lucky to have, to have found another creative partner. Um, and it's a different, I mean, I think of um, Suze's role as, I mean, she's, it's so multifaceted. Um, a lot of times it's like she's like the editor and the filter and is the the one in that um, she kind of always can have an ear out um, while she's doing something else downstairs and I'm upstairs kind of doing a lot of kind of stream of conscious singing and just trying to um, turn off the critical voice right. or the editing voice and just as much kind of free flow improvisational singing and playing as possible. But she's the one who's always like has an ear out and, and lets me know if I've stumbled onto anything worth pursuing. Um, that's interesting. And so I'm, you know, to have someone that you trust and love that's hearing kind of just all the, cause it's so much garbage. Um, <laughs> but to have someone that's kind of like can really pick up if there's like a cool melody or like a really interesting lyrical thing that I'm returning to or, I'm often like so in in the zone of it that I can't remember what I've done, and so she has to be the one that's like uh, is remembering what the melody was because I'll try to reproduce it, and she's like, "No, it wasn't that." 
the melody you were singing was this. It was way more interesting. It was this thing. Now that you're thinking about it, you can't, you know, like you, it's way harder to reproduce it. That's great. Um, so, and mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, yeah. And I, and I mean, I've been, I think the way I'm built is I, it's easy for me to churn out uh, a bunch of verses for a song, like a potential verses where I'll like, all right, well, I'll just, I don't quite know what I'm trying to say, but I'll write 20 verses and uh, just see what comes out once I force myself to, to kind of go that far along in all these different directions. Um, but then to have someone like Suze who can kind of sort through those and figure out what, what is the song really about? Or cause I'm kind of lost in, uh, different parts of the problem solving of the song and to have a collaborator that's one step out that can be like, Oh, this is, this is what the song is about. Or these verses are actually really good and worth working on more. And maybe it's important that it is not just another person, but it is someone that is so intertwined with your life. So she has an intuition as to what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing a lot. I mean, what I've thought about a lot with this new record line of light. I feel like it was so, I mean, I feel like I was writing to my editor in a way, like I was trying to try to like write stuff that Suze would be excited about singing. It's, it's just informed so much more by her obsessions and, um, so she's the audience in your head for this record. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think that's you know, and it was like, I mean, she handpicked these songs. There, there were there was a big batch, and it was kind of like the things that really, which that spoke to her. And then I, and then she was kind of like, I like this one that you're working on. Like this, I think is really worth to continue working on. So it's, I mean, and a role sometimes a producer plays that role, right? Um, and so to have to like live with your producer in that way, even I mean, we had a we brought in an incredible producer for this record. So we had, I got to have two of those people kind of involved in that creative process with me. So I feel like the, the record benefited so much from that. Let's talk, you, you, you kind of alluded to your process a little bit. You're, you're upstairs singing verses and Susan's downstairs listening. So I'm, I'm sure there is not one way you do this, but are you, are the words and the music kind of coming together at the same time for you in this process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's I, I ask that because when I listen to your music, it really I really get the impression that the words are so closely intertwined with the sound that they seem to be coming from the same place at the same time. Yeah, I think it's important to me that it feels really natural, and I mean sometimes that is is um, an effect of what you're hearing after months or years of me working on it, like that it, right. to get that naturalness. Um, sometimes there are parts of the song, like often a chorus or sometimes other parts of the song, it could be a verse or another melodic kind of hook that, yeah, it's kind of the genesis of it comes with a lyrical sound or a lyrical idea. Um, and then later I'm trying to, you know, like, I guess I was thinking for, how do you know if you're dreaming, for example, Okay, it's kind of like I sat down. I mean, I was trying to write a song for Suze when she was working on this lullaby record. And I was upstairs, and she was downstairs in the studio. And I was holding our, our daughter in an ergo. And I, like, sat down at the piano and basically wrote the chorus all in just, like, one one kind of inspirational burst. And then it was, like, the verses that just took forever. You know, where, I, I mean, by, like, like three or four years of kind of like keeping to come, keep returning to this song again and again wow. and trying to crack the code and like not just like not knowing what the verses needed to be, but 
knowing that I I loved the chorus, but I, the verses had to be as good or they had to hold up. Um, you know, and so then it was just like so much fine tuning is, and especially because the the verses are almost like a haiku. There's just so few words in there. Right. Um, the, so. so Yes. So you, you bring, I was going to bring up this song later. How do you know if you're dreaming? And it's interesting the way you're talking about it now, because my question, I, I want to say this properly. In a lot of your lyrics, I see simplicity, but they are not simplistic. And that's to me, the poetry of them. And what you've just described is three years of working towards that simplicity that I now listen to. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think that's well put. I mean, it's and it's a it's a fine line. I mean, I think um, it depends on the song. Some songs call for that more than others. I think it's just um, it's easy to get caught up, especially if you're someone like me. I think who's interested in language, has studied poetry. You know, it's. I think it's easy to get caught up in like trying to impress your audience or yourself or trying to impress Suze or but usually she sees right through that kind of stuff where it's like that that's just like there's something disingenuous about it and it's like too much about the ego and it's like all all this song needs is just like a a beautiful simple image and that is is really hard right and so to try to like figure out what are the least amount of words I need to paint this image that evokes a feeling for the audience that gets them further along on the journey of the song to like uh, understand what I'm what I'm trying to get at or at least like the trend, the space I'm trying to create for them as the listener to inhabit and in that space you have to also provide a lot of room and uh, that that I feel like is the art of it well, I can tell you, in this case, with this particular song, the three years effort was worth it because it, it got me to that place and it, mm -hmm. and it made me think about that simplicity uh, and, the, and the poetry and it, it, was, it was very well done. Thank you. Pink quills of light Magenta sky Eyelids painted on The inside Cool air in Soft tongue in the mouth How do you know If your eyes are closed How do you know If you're dreaming How do you know Do you truly know How do you know If you're dreaming up if we can sure we were talking about your your um, early days eventually you found your way to Mexico studying the folk music of Mexico right in college and after college mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so would you say in addition to your studies of the musicality was it the traditions and the social aspects of the music there that that had an impact on you and continue to 
Mm-hmm. For sure. And and sometimes, yeah, I mean, we can we can dig into this. Sometimes it's like um, I'm I feel more or less removed from it. Um, it's like I think moving to Charlottesville in some ways, I've been um, the most removed from it at this moment in my life. Um, because it was, yeah, it's. I think it was seeing music and folk music in particular, and kind of how integrated it was into into daily life in a community, right. which Sue's had that to some degree here in Charlottesville and out in Free Union, um, in a way that I, I didn't have growing up in Missouri. I mean, there were lots of great musicians. Um, I had a wonderful piano teacher who was uh, had studied jazz piano at Berkeley. Um, I found a really great bluegrass band that we would go to all their shows. Um, and so we sought out those musicians in our community, but it it wasn't um, like what I saw in, in Mexico where it was just like, if there was going to be a party or an event of any significance in a community, there was going to be music, live music. Right. And it was going to be this particular type of traditional live music that's been played in this community for hundreds of years, and everybody's going to dance, and it's just going to tap into this, like, this river of song that has been flowing through their lives and their community f- for generations. And, and that blew my mind and it, uh, gave me a sense of like, oh, this is what music can be. And like, if you, your role as a musician is to tap into that, um, and to be this conduit and, uh, to be this servant in your community, um, that is kind of guarding these traditions and keeping them alive and vibrant. And so for me to see that, it meant just the, all of a sudden kind of the role of the musician became more um, vital and kind of 3D in my mind where I think um, I had intellectualized it in such a way that I'd kind of discounted it. And going to Mexico opened up that for you. Yeah, yeah. I think it just, I just, I mean, ultimately it gave me this, a different sense of what it meant to be a musician and, and on a, on a real ground level, on this local level, um, that was like, you know, where it was like, oh, all these bands I'm obsessed with and like trying to follow their careers, like nobody knows who these people are in Mexico, like their status, their like cultural status in this super tiny little world that we've created like is it has no meaning outside of that tiny little world we've created right um and so it was some of that like yeah just opening my eyes as kind of uh from where i'd come from putting things in perspective kind of about thinking about what the value of a musician was and an artist in a community thinking about what yeah and, and then also what like as i started writing songs inspired by this music i think it was like a process of feeling oh i have something to contribute to this conversation um and i think that was important for me to feel like i kind of saw where i fit in right bringing that those traditions to new audiences Mm -hmm. and and kind of being in dialogue with them as someone who has this kind of american folk american pop idiom you know like being informed by that and coming to the mexican folk songs and like 
yeah, there's a there's a dialogue that's going lots of different directions. And in, in this moment now where it's like we're we're living in this cross-cultural world and I think that some of us are in denial about how much of that is happening. Um, and it's just a fact of life for so many people in our country. Um, and so maybe getting that sneak peek at an early ripe age of like, oh yeah, there is just so much incredible magic that can happen here as these two cultures come in contact with each other more and more. Um, and trying to make that more upfront and explicit in, in our life and embrace it and not be afraid of it. And um, yeah, I just feel like, oh, there's, there's a lot of conversations that are important and maybe I can help be a part of that. Right. Right. I think this is a related question. You've gained a reputation as a truly engaging, creative, entertaining live act. How would you describe your approach to live performance? What do you think is important about that? Well, I mean, I think it's been since the beginning... Um, it's just been such an integral part of what we do. So I think some of it's been feeling like just putting a priority on that and a value on that. Um, I think especially from Suze's perspective, it's like she hasn't been as interested in uh, historically in, in the band, like being in the studio and like really digging into that side of things. Um, but for her, she just feels the most engaged and alive and excited about the project when we're performing. And, I, and I'm there in a lot of ways, too, where it's just like that that's the, the real like when kind of these sparks fly for us of like, yeah, that's why we're doing this when we're just like she talks about it as just like the most elemental thing of just like words leaving our mouth and going to somebody else right in a room with us. I sometimes think about it in terms of like you know, not being, neither of us think of ourselves at all as virtuosic musicians. So sometimes I think when you're a musician that loves performing and you're not a virtuosic at your instrument or as a singer, you you kind of come at it in a different way because um, you're thinking almost maybe more in like the theatrical elements of it where you're like, right. how am I going to engage this audience? How am I going to keep their interest? How am I going to surprise this audience? How am I going to surprise myself? Uh, and to keep it fresh, like, what are the possibilities of the space that we're in right now that makes it feel like we're not just doing something out of routine, but that embraces the, the, the specialness of this moment of us being together in this one room and the weird acoustics or the, like, the weird design of where the bar is so that people over there don't feel like they're as engaged. So we need to get off the stage and go engage them in a different way. And so I think that um, from the beginning, we just felt like this is so arbitrary that we're up here on stage and that everybody's supposed to like look at us and all the attention's supposed to be on us right here on stage behind these microphones. And so I think informed in part by Sue's growing up and maybe more of a, like a folk tradition and me seeing that down in Mexico and being inspired, you know, I think that that was like from the early days of performance, it was like, you know, kind of like shaking. We just had to like shake it up, uh, shake up the audience, shake up ourselves, like kind of walk that tightrope a little bit where it's like, 
we don't know how this is going to go. This might not go well, but we're like, I feel like trying to take a lot of risks um, as performers, as a band. Um, and in and, the process, involve the audience. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it pays off. You know, a lot of times it can pay off because I think people are hungry for something that feels real and of the moment. And if if we're as performers, like, striving to be present and responding to what's going on, that that's the way to invite the audience in. Okay, we need to talk about something here. I saw this on your website, Concert in the Blind, right? Yeah. I, f- I find this fascinating. You evidently did shows where the audience was blindfolded, mm-hmm. right? We, yeah, it's, we're still doing them. You mm-hmm. still do them. Okay, can you talk about this sure. a little bit? Because I think it's fascinating. Sure, yeah. And I, I think it was a really natural outgrowth of, the, of the, what I'm talking about here. Right. Um, I was uh, invited, Susan and I were invited to dinner, like a dinner party at our friend's um, apartment. And they're this other husband and wife folk uh, group that lives here in Charlottesville called Lowland Hum. Right. And our the mutual friend that had kind of helped them plan the party had been like reading about dark dining and so it was like all right guys let's we'll do like a dark dining thing for daniel's birthday so everybody came to the party and was blindfolded before you came in and we all kind of like sat at this big table and uh it was really awkward and um like i just felt so self-conscious and I thought, well, this was kind of a cool experiment, but it didn't really work. But so many of us are musicians. Like, what if we were singing then and nobody was looking at us? And then maybe the people wouldn't feel so self-conscious about being blindfolded. Like, they would feel like they were having a private concert. And we I kind of started brainstorming with Suze about it. And we kind of, and every time we started talking about it, it just felt like it would just open up this, like, volcano of ideas. <laughs> And we were like, well, what if we did this? And like, what if we did this thing? And and then we like started talking about it with Lowland Hum, and they were like, it just like struck a chord with them. So we would just get together, and we would just like, we couldn't stop talking about it and brainstorming about it and getting excited about it. So we just started organizing them just in their apartment at first, where it was just like they could, they could fit forty people, and they had forty chairs, and they lived in this library. It's it's I don't think it's for everybody, but for the vast majority of people that have taken part in it, they've uh, been so emotionally moved by it. Um, I feel like it's kind of embracing the. It, or people say it feels like immersive theater. Okay. Um, and so just to have a performer, especially if you know their music or know their songs, it can it. I think it helps, but just to have a performer singing, whispering in your ear an acoustic instrument right next to you and then to have it move around in the room and to have harmonies coming from a different place and your your sense of uh your hearing senses are just uh, heightened when you're when you're blindfolded and when you're not uh trying to think about you know is your the person you're with having a good time are you right. having a good time can you see well enough like do you, you know like all these things that i think you know you're checking your phone like that person in front of me has a giant head. Yeah. All the yes. things that make it hard for us to be present or enjoy a concert as fully as we should. You know, just it, it felt like it was just cutting deep for people. 
really an emotional way. So we felt really energized by it. I think it's going to be something we're going to keep doing, and, and we've kind of taken it on many tours of the East Coast, but right now we're working on a set of songs with uh, Daniel and Lauren from Lowland Hum. The four of us are all together writing uh, with the idea that we're going to produce a little record of songs specifically written for that experience. I have to. I'm going to have to try that. I tell you, my wife uh, is a yoga teacher. She occasionally teaches a class where everyone is encouraged to keep their eyes closed for the entire class. And I tell you, I, I was a bit. It was a bit frightening at first, but as the class went on, I really got into a good place, and it made me have my own experience. I forgot that there was anybody else in the room. It was just the teacher's voice and my movement. And it kind of changed the way I approached my practice going forward because I realized I could have this experience on my own in a class with other people and no one, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. It's really, I, I, I'm going to have to catch up with you for one of those shows sometime. <laughs> yeah, we got to bring it to Chicago. Yeah. So let's talk about the record a little bit. Um, Line of Light, uh, produced by Carl Bromel, I hope I'm saying his name right. Bramel. Um, Bramel, okay, who plays with my morning jacket, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some consistent themes lyrically on the album that run through the songs, but the productions, at least my take, the productions were quite varied, and that's something I really liked when I listened through the album. Can you talk about how the songs kind of generally come together and got to that point of these different production sounds? Is this something you're hearing early in the process, or is it a case of more a case of kind of discovering what the songs were once you get into the studio with them? I think a lot of it was a process of discovery. I think um, it was informed by a couple a couple of different things that I I can speak to. Uh, one was that when we first met Carl and. Um, went to his studio to kind of like, oh yeah, let's let's try hanging out and working on a song together. And um, he just finished this home studio. And we, we felt so comfortable at his house um, and in his home studio. And it was just really disarming, I guess, to be like around this amazing musician um, who was able to just right away dial in these beautiful sounds so that in our headset what you're hearing just has that kind of like larger than life quality to it but it was just in this very kind of simple one room studio I think it sometimes it can be intimidating to be in a big fancy studio and so I think that being just in his home studio with just him and the two of us and not I think in the past uh, we had uh, relied on just like a lot of like razzle dazzle like just like these like incredible musicians we've gotten to work with in the studio and often these producers that have a lot of producing experience and like just throwing out tons of ideas and um, it was just such a great fit that Carl was at a point where he hadn't done a lot of producing was like very he had produced his own records which we loved um, but he had no ego about it and was just such a great listener and like giving us space to kind of figure out the parts and I just felt like he was supporting us 
more encouraging and more like, um, how can I help you guys get to figure out this vision or get to this vision? Um, and that was a really different way of working uh, in the studio for us, um, a different pro- producer style. And and because we loved that experience of being with him in the studio and feeling like, oh yeah, like can these, we've been playing so much as a duo recently, like just making sure the songs can live and exist in in that context. And then we can decide what songs need to be more elaborated. Um, and Carl had a vision for some songs where he was like, I really want to get to my favorite Nashville studio that also ha- is super vibey and get the get the band there and like for some stuff that's just going to be better for the stuff that's for, like a little rock particular more rocking. songs yeah. yeah so just being selective about like what are the songs that are going to be called that are going to call for that and what are the ones that we can pull off here it was such a gift to be able to be in carl's space and have time and he just was like just so generous with his time and what he was charging us so that we weren't stressed about it like like oh man we're on the clock and this is costing us a lot of money and we have to make a decision now and it was like right he was just like all right i'm gonna leave for a little bit and let you guys figure this part out you know i'll come check back in or like you know and his house is right there and he like is spending time with his kid for a minute and that gives us time to like hash out something between the two of us and that was that was like this beautiful space that he created for us to be able to be like yeah this is gonna work really well it gave us a, a new kind of confidence about the whole studio experience hmm. that it's just taken us a while to get there um, as people that are not like studio musicians. Right. But I, it, it seemed to come together very well because, like I said, the different sounds of the different songs provide that variety. But it, as a whole piece, it really it really works. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about uh, the song Uncover the Gold. I read that you wrote this as a response to the events of last year in your hometown of Charlottesville. Is that correct? Yeah, now it's been two years, though. Two actually. years, right. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten... A lot of people in the last couple of years have been asking me, like, oh, how has like, being a dad changed your writing or um, informed the way you're writing? It's, it's a really hard question for me to answer. It was um, the next on my list. <laughs> But I thought with this, it really, I feel like I can articulate it better because I saw those events and this like, you know, this white nationalist hate rally and people saying, you know, like with torches saying Jews will not replace us in the town where I live. Right. Um, And I saw it through the eyes of being a dad and like, how do I how do I talk about this or make sense of this for my kids and and they're they're too young f- for it now but I thought about it a lot like how am I gonna when they read about this when they find out about this when they're older that this happened in their town how am I gonna explain that to them how am I gonna make it not so terrifying to explain to them and and how can I for myself too like try to find something um like out of this ugly situation this like try to focus on what what if there is there anything positive or beautiful that can come out of a terrible experience like this have give people a sense of like what's at stake and what's worth fighting for in our community and like um not letting our uh, ourselves be defined by this hate rally 
that for so many people here is just like such an aberration. Even though like any community in America, we have racial issues and a fraught history. Um, but just to like start coming to terms more with that, um, to, um, I don't know, I, I guess I just felt this, I, I couldn't, I'm not, I can't write a topical song or at, at this moment in my life, I just, that's not appealing to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm still writing this song in a way where it's like, I'm not going to name drop things. I'm not going to, I'm trying to zoom out as much as possible. And that's kind of Suze's uh, MO is like her way of dealing with art. This fraught political moment we're in is like trying to zoom out and kind of put it in the largest context possible so that it, for her, it's like a, a, a really, uh, it's a coping strategy that is, um, I think, informed by a lot of wisdom and, and, um, I've learned a lot from from that way of looking at it. I I don't know if this is the right word, but it is somewhat of an optimistic song, right? That it's 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 a message of hope. Uh, yeah, I I wanted it to be that for people that you know, and I think that as I think about like what's our role now as artists, or especially as people that are representing Charlottesville around the world, and now people when they think of Charlottesville, they think of this terrible thing, mm-hmm. and trying to like put forward a positive, hopeful message, um, something that people can rally around that I think that's an important part of what our role is now. Um, So yeah, I'm glad that that comes across as hopeful. Though the darkness here is deep And the raging beasts run wild Even they must leave That's when we'll move my child Every day is a day Every mountain just a small hill Something washes away It uncovers the gold Every day is a day Every mountain just a small hill Something washes away It uncovers the Here's another, I think, optimistic song, Human Chain, right? It follows this theme of, of mm-hmm. we are all in this together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to talk about the arrangement of the song, which sure. is pretty complex, and I was kind of curious how that came together. Sure. I mean, this is one that um, was such a cool group uh, project. I mean, I've been playing the song and trying to crack the code of the song lyrically forever, Um, it was one that I I felt strongly about wanting to sing and have on the record, but, um, it was again, one of those songs that was really hard to, to pull off lyrically. There's just so few words in it. Um, and to really make them count and to not have it be preachy. I think a lot of us are like moved by the idea of like our interconnectedness and like what that means for the environment, what that means for kind of this global world we're in and, and the kind of pro- the scope of the problems we're trying to deal with. And like when we're in an age when some, you know, people on the right in particular, try, like this polarization and the kind of separating us out, 
um, for political gain as opposed to what we really need to be doing is like realizing how interdependent we are and how much we have at stake and how much we have to figure out together if we're going to survive on this planet. Um, so to kind of like, so that was the motivating force, like a song that can speak to that. But it was really when we were together with the band in Missouri and like woodshedding the songs, kind of starting to demo the songs where it was like the the electric guitarist that we were collaborating with, Carrie Clayton and Ben Cogan and Danilo, our drummer, um, were kind of starting to build this riff. And that was not, like we hadn't really been in the studio you know, from the get-go with electric guitarists before. So I hadn't been thinking about, like, the kind of foundational rift as being the kind of, like, musical motif that is the glue in the song. Um, so it was definitely informed by this this co- group collaboration of figuring out this riff that then is kind of, like, the, you know, where the song keeps coming back to. Right. Um, you know, and it's the, the bridge is uh, based on this Mexican folk song called Los Chiles Verdes. And so it's a switch. It's like, all right, that's when the the rest of the song, I'm not going to play Harana. I'm not going to strum. I'm just like playing this little uh, synth part. And then the bridge is going to be this other moment where it opens up or there's a scene change. Um, and now it's like wor- the world percussion that Danilo, our drummer, brings into it. And all the haranas that I play layered on top of each other. I mean, it's almost like you're trying to, for me, I'm also trying to like shake the listener and like say something else to them about what what's at stake, why this matters, why am I singing about this? Um, and so it's like to change the music enough and change the scenery so that it jars the listener a little bit. And they're like, what, what is, you know, what are they trying to, signal to me that something like I have to shift my attention in a different way Thus, um, I, I, I hope you enjoy the coming um, tour and all of that uh, excitement about the new record. Thank you. Um, okay. Great. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks for taking the time with the all record right, and really listening. Really yeah. appreciate it. I, I look forward to listening to it more. Thanks again. Excellent. Thanks so much.
skin Oh, how she eases me in A bare room, an oak tree A rainstorm and everything Oh, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I know I did. You should go listen to David Wax Museum's record, Line of Light. And you should go see one of their shows. Maybe one of the blindfolded ones. Maybe we'll be at the same show. But we would know it because blindfolds. If you like this episode, please check out some of our others. Better yet, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any. And give us a good rating. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Machine, the Stitcher, uh, our website. We are everywhere. And tell a music-loving friend about us. So that's it for now. Until next time, remember, music is the best. strong enough is it strong enough for you is my love strong enough enough to get you through